0: I'm going to read a paragraph from the Echo Magazine, 20 Women Who Are Transforming the World. And my mother was sent a page. And she said in her last paragraph, she said, I plan to stay in all girl guards until I die. Because I want to continue to fight. If I move, I wouldn't know what's going on. So I couldn't help. My wish for my community is for them to learn to stand up to fight for their rights. What makes me feel good is that my daughter, Cheryl, will make sure People for Community Recovery keeps going. And that's my charge.
1: This is Episode 5, Inheriting the Shoebox. Will you speak of
2: Cheryl Johnson, the daughter of the mother of environmental justice, and how Similar her work is to her mother's. I would say it's spot on. Cheryl had to kind of pick up those extra added duties and responsibilities once her mother started getting sick.
3: Usually when you tell a story, the narrative starts to fade or recede when the hero retreats from view. But this story is not just about a hero. This story is about a legacy. It's the fight for environmental justice in the gardens and the fight for justice and repair across the globe. In embarking on this project, it was obvious immediately that Cheryl's not simply a successor who took on the title director of PCR. Cheryl is more than just Hazel's daughter. She herself is a mother of the movement. Over the course of the episode, we're going to trace
1: Cheryl's rise into responsibility at PCR and in the EJ movement overall, working with, around, and in opposition to academia, as she works to address the violence that exists in the gardens while getting to the root causes, and lays out how the EJ movement builds pathways toward repair. As PCR's Beria Hampton said a minute ago, Cheryl learned how to serve that role proudly, working alongside her mom. Here's David Pello talking about working with the two of them together.
4: I mean, it was clear that, you know, Hazel was in charge, but it was also very clear that the two of them they they collaborated at every step of the way. And Cheryl was, you know, was Hazel's right hand. When, when Hazel couldn't travel or couldn't make it to a meeting, Cheryl was always there making speeches, making public appearances, doing much of the the day to day kind of gritty work. But Cheryl was really uh, her, her right hand. And, you know, soon became, even as Hazel was still executive director, soon became I think in in her own right a, a real public figure. I would also just say on a personal note, uh, both of them had have wonderful you know sense of of humor. But uh, but Cheryl and I, you know, I mean Hazel was the boss, so you know I had to you know show deference and total respect at all times. But Cheryl could really cut up and uh, you know put folks at ease, and she's just great at cracking jokes and just a a, a brilliant. Art and science of of just kind of mixing serious business with informality and uh, putting people at ease, while at the same time saying, "Hey, let's get this this serious work done," and also find some time for some levity and some some humor. So I always appreciate that uh, about Cheryl. Even in the <laughs> the darkest moments, she she can find humor and just crack you up. So uh, she's she's super charismatic in her own way, no question about it.
3: Pello put it perfectly, that's true to our experience. Throughout this process of getting to know Cheryl, she has had no fear of cutting up.
1: As you may recall from our previous episode, here's a reminder.
0: When I'm out of my element sometimes, I was like, okay, Cheryl, you being a sack of bitches.
3: (laughs) Her laugh is infectious.
1: When we talked with Professor David Pello, a professor of environmental studies and director of the Global Environmental Justice Project at the University of California, Santa Barbara, we were surprised and delighted at how excited he was to talk about his memories and how introspective he was about his time working with
4: PCR. I was taking a class first week of grad school at Northwestern University and uh, my, my professor Arlene Kaplan Daniels Uh, was uh, teaching a class on field research. And she said, look, I need y'all to get out there, find a neighborhood, find a community, find a person who you can talk to, who you can observe, who's willing to let you take notes on their life and write up a brilliant and beautiful paper. I'm like, what does that mean? Well, I um, was listening to the WBZ, Chicago NPR radio, and they said this weekend, there's gonna be a mini earth summit down at DePaul to talk about what local folks are doing to make the earth more sustainable and equitable. So I decided, let me just go down there and see what's happening. First room I walked into, first panel at the conference that I witnessed was Cheryl Johnson and Kevin Green, who at the time was working for the Center for Neighborhood Technology and who later on worked for the Illinois Environmental Protection Agency. They were both given a presentation on environmental racism. I was blown away. I walked up to them and said, hey, Kevin Green, nice to meet you. She, you know, Cheryl Johnson, I need to talk to you. I would love to study your organization. I've got this class project. And she said, so you're taking notes? Uh-huh. You're doing observations? Yes. You're writing a paper? Yes. She goes, okay, we need somebody to take minutes in our meetings. We need somebody to take notes from, from meetings we're we're going to with people around the city. And we need a little bit of help proofreading and helping draft up memos and grant proposals and whatnot. And I'm like, oh, Jesus, I didn't sign up for this. I'm just trying to do a class project. But it was a lesson in in reciprocity, right, that I couldn't just take without giving. And she made that very clear in the first 60 seconds of me meeting her.
3: Wow, that was a really apt and sophisticated response by Cheryl in real time to a young academic asking for access.
1: But why would Cheryl have felt the need to start with this demand for reciprocity? before even really getting to know the person, their name, and and what they were working on.
3: As the environmental justice movement began to formally define itself, have global conferences, interact with the White House, we start to see academia take notes on the work that was being developed by grassroots organizations.
1: There had always been scholars involved in the environmental justice movement, but over time, there was much more of a clamor for students and professors alike to get in the rooms where this world-changing work was happening. Pelo breaks down some of the complications of that dynamic.
4: You know, PCR, like a lot of environmental justice organizations, like a lot of community-based organizations, particularly you know in BIPOC communities, uh, has you know always had partners in universities and foundations and you know various government agencies, but have always been that that struggle and and question as to whether PCR is actually getting its due, right, benefiting sufficiently and equitably from those partnerships. I mean, certainly as somebody in academia, you know, there's always that risk, that fear, and often that reality that what academics are doing, for example, is just extracting knowledge and and information and expertise for for our own careers. And uh, if somebody wanted to call me out on that, I, you know, I think, you know, there would be some basis for for making that, that claim. I mean, I've built my career off of working with community organizations, and I think I've given back, But have I given back enough? Could I have done more? You know, those are absolutely legitimate questions.
1: That type of contribution that David Pello talks about is evident in the work that he did coming out of his time with PCR. His book Garbage Wars, which covers the fight in the 80s around the landfill moratorium in Chicago, was an important source for us as we built this show. Pello isn't alone. There have been so many students who have been welcomed into PCR over the years, it's something that Hazel always prioritized.
3: And Cheryl explains how creating space for young minds to grow can be a path towards transformative power.
1: My mother always wanted to make
0: sure that the young generations and educated kids get this stuff. That's why we still do the toxic tours in our community with college students and stuff, because we need them to for trade industry and corporation to recycle their minds and souls.
3: So poetic. As you may have noticed, Cheryl does more than just cut up. She also be dropping these bars and these gems. And right there, she's so eloquently describing the intention and this investment into future generations of institutional power. And it is clear that that investment exists within attention. That attention is not specific to PCR. We see it play out throughout the EJ movement.
1: Teresa Cordova, a professor who's also been deeply involved in grassroots EJ work. Shed some light on how this tension plays out.
5: As someone who has spent one's life with organizations outside the university, I observe the problematic assumptions, maybe that academics, including students, make. And also, I know from a lot of organizations that it's a lot of work to take the time to interview, and they'll often say, Oh, you interviewed us, but then we never heard back from you. You know, there are a lot of issues that organizations have had and do have when academics come rolling around, right? Simultaneously, there are other academics that have forged really important partnerships with environmental justice organizations. Nobody spoke to this dynamic
1: with more experience and vigor than Dr. Sylvia Hood Washington. We've heard her already a couple times through the series, but we think it's really important that y'all get a sense of who she is and what she's done. Dr. Sylvia Hood Washington is an environmental epidemiologist, engineer, and historian who was the first African American scholar to publish a formal history of environmental injustice in the United States. She's the author of Packing Them In, An Archaeology of Environmental Racism in Chicago, 1865-1954, to and is the editor of Echoes from the Poisoned Well, Global Memories of Environmental Injustices. She served as the co-chair of the Illinois EPA Environmental Justice Advisory Board, and has been a professor at DePaul, University of Maryland, UIC, and throughout the University of Illinois system. She's also just done like a bunch of other amazing stuff, like work for NASA. Apparently, she was the first Black woman to become a journeyman engineer there, where she worked on the public and environmental health risks after the Challenger disaster. So she's been in the mix doing amazing work for a very long time.
3: Dr. Hood Washington gracefully navigated institutional spaces and really got a behind-the-curtains look at the races, sexist, elitist ways the academic institution viewed Hazel, Cheryl, and PCR.
6: It's like driving while black, right? (laughs) You could be driving at the limit and still get pulled over because it's assumed that you are being a deviant, right? Something must be wrong with you. You're doing something bad. And I think Hazel Johnson was being an environmentalist while being a black woman. (laughs) Okay. That was just, she had two strikes against her. She was a woman and she was black and she was not highly educated.
3: These intersecting so-called strikes did not stop academic institutions from mm-hmm. seeing Hazel and Cheryl's work and home as a site of study.
6: A lot of universities flowed through all Gililgard. A lot of them had graduate students, undergraduate students come in there and do their projects. and she was saying, and a lot of environmental justice community activists were saying that they didn't want to be exploited. They didn't want people coming in and writing about and researching about their pain and their efforts to get whatever they were going to get and leave them behind. And it's still happening today, right? You still have uh, colleges. They need students to have projects. And so Hill Gardens is like, that's like a project site that they run them through there to check the box. And, yeah, I got this exposure to environmental health, environmental justice, and they walk out. But my students asked me, and I asked Hazel and Cheryl, but what has it eventually done for that community. When I was in the institutions here, two in particular, there was a lot of demonization of haze and And this is the racist part. They're hustlers. They're always trying to get money. Well, I said, are the problems that they're bringing to your attention real problems or imaginary, right? I have not heard other environmental activists being discussed that way. Because at one point in time, I was told not to work with them. I was told by academics not to work with them. I was told by environmental groups not to work with them. And again, the accusation was that they were hustlers. And there were some people who became their enemies, so to speak. I would say frenemy, because <laughs> they still wanted to go in there and have their students do work on them. we were talking on both sides of their mouth, right? If that alt Gardens was good enough for them to come in there and run in all these PhDs, then... Why couldn't you have created an institute for them? At one point in time, some of the grants that were out there in the 2000s was to have a pipeline to create environmental scientists and scholars out of a place like Altville Garden. There was money there for that. And I tell you now, being in a room, there are people who's like, I, they'll never be scientists. I remember writing a National Science Foundation grant. And a and part of the grant was to create formal education efforts for the community. And National Science Foundation loved the concept. I got the money, <laughs> and it was two parts: the academic intellectual part, nobody had a problem with. When it came to implementing the community support part, Hazel Johnson was dead on the money. These academic institutions said they did not want the community to be empowered. I remember one person at UIC School of Public Health. he literally said in the meeting, "I don't want her to implement that part of the grant. I don't want the community." to be riled up by letting them know what's happening to them. Because they were, they were committed to the concept that basically a place like Allkill Gardens were basically like their, their lab studies. It's a form of slavery because it's like, so we're gonna, we're gonna send our students in, study you, get their PhDs, get their master's degrees, get good jobs, but we're not gonna do anything institutionally to, and infrastructurally to lift you up. She was a woman and she was black and she was not highly educated. And that limited her power. And that, to me, is why it was difficult for her and Cheryl to create permanent institutional relationships that was able to benefit the community.
3: So I asked Cheryl how this dynamic resonated with her. Did she recognize this distrust coming from academic institutions? Did you see that lack of trust or that dehumanization as Black women living in public housing? Can you talk about some of the ways that you observed or experienced that? Oh,
0: yes, yes. You know, I went to a meeting in D.C. and Vice President Al Gore was present. They started this community university partnership grant. It was called CUP. But the lead would always be the university. And the university wasn't doing what they supposed to do. In that type of partnership, they made us substandard. And I said that he needed to revisit the CUP program because it ain't working for community groups like ours. And I said that publicly, and ever since I said that publicly, things just went spiraling down for us as an organization.
1: Soon after the CUP meeting in D.C., Cheryl had a meeting with a woman named Margaret Millard.
0: May she rest in peace. She was an EJ coordinator for the United States Environmental Protection Agency.
1: She asked me
0: to meet her for lunch, and we met at Burger King. And she told me, she said, look, Cheryl, I just have to be blunt honest with you, and I'm supposed to do this because I could lose my job. Whatever grants that you apply for at US EPA, you will never be funded. PCR been blackballed. We was the first community group in the country to get training, technical training, down to the community base. And it was lead-based abatement training for workers. We was the first in the country to ever prove that this type of technical training can be done in the community. Well, we trained over 300 folks. After the first two years of training, that third year, during that period where she told us, they wouldn't fund it. Everybody just distanced themselves from us, in a way. Like we was toxing our damn self.
3: So maybe I'm connecting dots that ain't there. But after hearing Sylvia's experience in the academy and Cheryl's story, I have a takeaway. Let's hear it. And it starts from that training program that she just named. As we focus more on Cheryl and her distinctions from Hazel, one of her major focuses has always been workforce development and building up the technical capacity of the people of the gardens to address this environmental damage. And what we hear Sylvia say is that many of her peers in the academy don't think people from the gardens or communities like it are capable or smart enough to do this type of scientific work.
1: Yeah, you kind of hear it two ways. Like one, quote, they wouldn't be capable. And two, if they did have access to the information, it would
3: cause unrest that people in power don't want to see. And so we see these tags of difficult or, or hustling being thrown around. And yeah, a Black woman from the projects that stands up to the vice president of the United States in a meeting and say, one of your flagship programs is failing in its design. One, would we'll get you the label of being difficult or, or speak it out of turn. But two, what I'm really taking away from this is academia sees this investment into everyday people being in training programs, learning to become scientists as a misappropriation, as beyond what is to be expected or accepted.
1: And look, we don't know exactly how the EPA justified not renewing that grant, just like we don't know what happened on every budget sheet for every proposal that PCR ever sent in. But what we do know, like Sylvia said, is that the claims that PCR made about the environmental injustices that had happened to their community were real, and that the ideas for how to address that harm were valid. If 300 people can be trained in two grant cycles on how to clean up lead in their own communities, imagine what would happen if you followed that lead across the country.
3: It's important to highlight that this is an innovative departure. According to Cheryl, this training was the first of its kind.
1: You know, a while back in the episode, Teresa made this point that, yes, there are individual academics who have been extractive, but there are, of course, other academics who have built meaningful relationships.
3: And have participated with integrity and have really been in true solidarity with the struggle.
1: We talked to some of them. However, the problem is not individual intention. The problem is about a relationship to power.
3: And if we're going to get to the root of this, the structure from which these moral aspersions came needs to be examined with an even higher scrutiny than we saw from those institutions looking at Hazel and Sheryl.
6: At one point in time, I remember being in, the, being in the hallway and they were like, oh, they misspent money. Institutions misspent money all the time. <laughs> I'm sorry. And universities are, talk about hustling. Universities are bandits, man. You'll get a research grant, they're gonna take like 30%, 40% off your, your research funding. And they up here calling Hazel and Sheryl hustling. Even if they were hustling, they weren't going to get as much money as these academics, right? But that's the stereotype. Welfare queen, like defrauding the government, taking money from people and doing something else with it. Thinking back on it, I mean, I knew then it was like racist and sexist, but it was like, wow, here's a scientist to me. But is there a real scientific and health issue over there? And they would tell you behind closed doors, yes.
4: I've always been. Since the moment I met Cheryl and Hazel, I guess a representative of an employee of universities, there are so many wonderful things that universities do and can do, but there are also a lot of horrific things. I mean, I just got a a memo the other day from some students here at my own university just uh, laying out in chapter and verse the depths to which my university is in bed with and propping up the military-industrial complex. I'm going to talk about the major manufacturers of, of weapons of mass destruction and dealers of death. You know, We're talking about full-on ecocidal, genocidal mass atrocities being committed by the U.S. military. And my organization, my employer, is deeply involved in that. Professors doing research, getting funding from these organizations. So I often question my role as somebody who's working in an institution that uh can have so we say mixed outcomes and impacts and 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 troubling motivations and entanglements with with systems of power and then of course there's the fact you know being a a person of color in a white supremacist society trying to to get some resolutions trying to to move forward with some measure some modicum of justice by pushing by demanding by calling out and maybe occasionally calling in uh, those those power structures that fundamentally, I don't think are willing to change. so i'm I'm constantly grappling with that, and uh, I have no answers, no easy solutions. But again, Hazel and, and Cheryl really showed me that that there are ways to manage those those tensions, to live with, to hold those tensions, and and still keep your your dignity.
1: This exploitative relationship with academia wasn't just a problem for PCR. A couple years after Cheryl got blackballed and 11 years after the first People of Color convening, many of the same organizers reconvened in D.C. Sylvia names how in that space, one of the loudest cries from the EJ movement was that same tenuous relationship with academia.
6: They were saying that for the environmental justice movement to really be true to its foundational objective and roots, the activist communities had to have equal partnership. That had not happened what they had observed as community activists was an exploitation by people outside the EJ community.
3: We see that there's a spectrum of institutional access and accreditation across the movement. Many of the prominent figures had PhDs, became professors, had fellowships, or worked in departments within universities and other institutions.
1: This exploitative relationship to academia was detrimental for everybody in the EJ movement. But for Cheryl, this inequitable power dynamic resulted in a greater precarity, both for her ability to do the work and to pay her bills. Work in this
0: industry, doing community work, is truly charity work. And it's personal decision that I have made to continue doing this type of work, where I had to go and rely on public assistance to feed my family and to pay my rent. But I sacrificed that and did that. We was blackballed for 10 years. And that's when I'm telling you I had to go get on public aid and all that old stuff. And let me tell you something. I'll never forget this. I took an aptitude test. I missed one on delivery just to get a 98. (laughs) You know what I mean? mean, I'm telling you the (laughs) truth. And then when I told them, they was trying to tell me that I have to get a job. I said, I got a job. I just don't get paid for it why I can't do what I do every day at people for community recovery. We are registered. We are 511c3. We the whole bit. They was talking about, no, it's not a job if you don't get paid. I said, yes, it is. I work for my community every day. Why do I have to get compensate money? And I said, this is an entitlement that I'm entitled to when I need it. And I need y'all. Then one time they told me, I'll never forget. The Academy Community Center on 126 in Ashley. They told me that I would have to go for job training. I said, okay, I'm gonna go. I went there at 9 o'clock. They said I had to be on time at 9 o'clock. I got there at 9 o'clock. The lady met me. Oh, you here from 119? I forgot to say from the public aid office, like yet. Yeah. She said, okay, well, let me show you where you put your coat. I'm putting my coat where they keep all their genital stuff at. And she said, here go the mop, here go the broom, and we want you to sweep and clean up. I said, hold up. I'm here for training not to do any domestic services. I said, Y'all got me mixed up. I said, Here go the paper right here. It says training not to do any services. I documented all that. I kept all that stuff. When I walked in the door to apply for public aid, some just hit me and said, Document your experience. I came up with 24 pages of how I was mistreated at the public aid office. And see, I believe go to the head because the body would follow. I wrote to President Clinton, I wrote to his wife, I wrote to Al Gore, and I sent the whole 24 pages. Well, anyway, I didn't find out that I got some resolutions. I didn't think none of it, but when I was doing the deposition for the PCB, the lawyer came and asked me, did you know that Hillary Clinton responded to your letters that you sent? I was like, what you talking about? He said, didn't you write all of them? She got in contact with our state public aid department. And that's why you've seen all the changes. And that's how I found out that Hillary has something to do with those changes coming with our Illinois Department of Public Aid. So you're saying the
3: whole Illinois department
0: changed as a result of this? The policy. See, you didn't know what you are supposed to do when you go into the public aid office.
3: This is an important story. I think we need to take some time and unpack what Cheryl just said to us, because I think this is really significant to the bigger story. All right, let's do it. So we are in the era of Cheryl taking more prominence and leadership as Hazel is aging. And during this time, one is interacting with the federal government. Yeah, this is
1: when all that knee jack and common sense initiative work is happening. Right,
3: right. So at this meeting, at the CUP program, where the vice president of the United States, Al Gore, is present, and she stands up and names that this large federal initiative is not living up to its claims. In that same time, let's not forget on a local level, they are in struggle around the PCB fights. There's a lot of local political power that she's in direct struggle with.
1: Yes, yeah, CHA, the mayor's office, local EPA, even.
3: Mm-hmm. And in some of our other conversations, that trickled down to their local alderman and to the state senator. And at the same time, they're being called hustlers. Right. Right. So the idea is that they're taking money, but the reality, as Cheryl names, is that she's actually having to sacrifice her salary for the organization to continue on, which forces her to go to the public aid office. So she goes to the public aid office, and so she has to take an aptitude test, and then she has to come back for training. And in that training, it is the state government extracting free janitorial services, treating this black woman like a maid. But Cheryl is brilliant, experienced, and connected, so she doesn't just go through this experience passively. From there, she sends letters off to the entire federal administration, it seems. <laughs> And the result of that is the then first lady, Hillary Clinton, changing the policy of how public aid works in the state of Illinois.
1: Yeah, in case you didn't catch the explanation of what changed, as a result of Cheryl's letter, now when people go into the public aid office, they're provided with resources about exactly what steps they're supposed to take and what to expect. Because beforehand, if you missed a step that you didn't know you were supposed to do, you lost your entitlement to that support and that aid.
3: And then this last part is just conjecture, but I think it's of significance. In the last episode, we talked about the conflict with Barack Obama and his campaign and Hazel's choice to support Hillary Clinton. You know, we'll give you a quick peek behind the curtain. We're no Hillary Clinton fans here. (laughs) But in hearing that story, it would make sense the difference between the young organizer who was connected to our space, who never came back, versus the woman who received a letter from my daughter and change the way public aid worked in my state, in addition to the longstanding interaction the EJ movement had with the Clinton administration.
1: Again, Hazel's not here for us to ask her decision-making process, but that would make sense. All right, let's get back to the story. Wait, wait, wait.
3: We can't move on yet. Okay. I'm actually, we're burying the lead of the whole significance of this, and there's a deeper irony to this whole thing. All right.
1: Demon's got one of those like things on the wall where the strings are all connecting right now, but it's true.
3: But this is obvious. So we can hypothesize that Hillary Clinton showing up in this difficult time could have had significant impact. But that's smoothing past the fact that Bill Clinton is why Cheryl had to go through this in the first place. What do you mean? So one of the major legislative accomplishments, put the big air quotes on this, of the Clinton administration is the 1996 Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Act. So Bill Clinton, as he was running for president, promised that he would end welfare as we know it. So he worked with Newt Gingrich and the Republican Congress.
1: Which, what an onomatopoeia name. <laughs> like the fact we don't talk about that, he's the only person named Newt that, that we know
3: of. So Newness Squad. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the, Salamanders, <laughs> the Salamanders Squad. Yeah,
3: so Newton the Salamanders <laughs> had been striving for a really long time, basically, to end welfare. And so in 1996, with this act, it was the end of the AFDC, the Aid to Families with Dependent Children, and the shift to TANF, the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families Program.
1: What does that mean? What's the difference between those?
3: The biggest difference of what this legislation brought was it granted states greater latitude in administering social welfare programs implemented new requirements on welfare recipients, including a five-year lifetime limit on benefits. And one of its major additions was bringing about a workfare requirement for people to receive aid. And the effect of this law is that after its passage, the number of people receiving federal welfare dramatically declined. The law was actually celebrated as a reassertion. This is terrible. The law was celebrated as a reassertion of America's work ethic by the then Chamber of Commerce.
1: So basically what you're saying is by Clinton passing this bill, The control over how welfare ran was moved to the states in many ways.
3: And it can easily be interpreted to make the process more difficult and abrasive.
1: Which is what Cheryl then encountered Mm -hmm. and what then she had to reach back to the highest halls of power on a wing and a prayer to try to get addressed. So this great accomplishment of then reforming the quote welfare reform to meet the needs of people that she made possible with this letter to Hillary Clinton wouldn't have been needed in the first place if the Clintons themselves hadn't made this problem exist.
3: You see why I wanted to break that down? This is madness. Yeah, that's, uh, that's that's not great. Not good at all.
1: So yeah, overall, to make a long story short, as Cheryl says.
0: I went through a whole lot just being a resident out here, you know.
3: If we remember, all Gardens was not always associated with economic precarity. When it was first built for many, It was actually seen as a well-resourced community and a space for upward mobility. And through Cheryl's experience, we can see this shift from what the mother of environmental justice experienced to what her daughter and her daughter's generation had to endure.
1: By the time Cheryl was coming of age, the social supports and structures that had made the gardens a space of stability had disappeared. And that wasn't just true in the gardens. This is the era of the rise of neoliberalism. you probably heard that word before. Depending on who's using it and when, it can mean a lot of different
3: things. But a way to put it simply, it's a prioritization of profit-driven markets and corporate power to meet the needs of people, coupled with a divestment and deprioritization of social services and public institutions.
1: So rather than people's needs being met by the public or the state, the premise is if we move that money to the private sphere, the market will serve those needs. In reality, that has created decades of divestment and devastation
3: in the gardens, across Chicago, and really around the world. So we don't have time to do the full neoliberalism podcast, even though this story is pretty much a narrative about neoliberalism.
1: Yeah, this kind of is the neoliberalism (laughs) podcast.
3: But to keep it simple and the impact of the gardens, what we see is a Decrease in social services and elimination of the social safety net, while also in the name of increasing corporate power and profits, the reduction and disappearance of labor markets, and jobs vanishing from the community.
1: Right. The entire economic worker base in the area that had brought people to the southeast side, that was part of why the gardens was even built there in the first place, was the steel industry that existed along Lake Michigan on the southern end of the city into Indiana. In this time of privatization and corporate profits... That production went overseas and those jobs disappeared. There was no plan in place to address the needs of those former workers. Dr. Bob Ginsberg gives us a little history.
4: In the 50s, early 60s, what were your big steelmaking areas around the world? There was sort of southeast Chicago, northern Indiana, northwest Ohio, that whole big area along there. You had the Midlands in Britain. You had the Ruhr Valley in Germany and you had around Yokohama in Japan. As the steel industry shrank around the world, all those other countries had national plans. how do we deal with this? How do we deal with the populations? How do we deal with those communities? In this country, we did nothing. Reagan said, up. Oh, it's a market force. And in that void,
3: a lot of space was made for despair and traumatic conflict. And Cheryl names how this radical destruction of the local economy informed a generation of violence that all Gell suffered through.
0: All this disinvestment in our community, disinvestment equals to violence. That's just it. When you took away all those things back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, because most of the people I remember in my community owned businesses. The teachers lived in the community. The touring officers, as we called them back then, lived in the community. When you took all those supportive systems that help a person, a student, to be a thriving community, when you took all that out and you expect for the end result to be pleasant, that's why we see violence in our streets
3: today. Cheryl's right. But disinvestment doesn't only bring violence. Disinvestment is violence. And for me, there is a universal truth. Violence begets violence. The violence that occurs in Chicago has become a political character that is shaped by a discourse that for me is really triggering and is angering as it gets filtered through these statistic based conversations as if it's a sports season. And it's dehumanizing, one, because it erases the structural violence that makes chaos inevitable, but more importantly, it decenters, if not erases, the real human impact, the complexity of compounding grief. Grief of lost loved ones. Grief of lost spaces, grief of the loss of home, grief of a loss of community. And the erasure of that reality becomes an obstacle to making space for healing. Joy West tells us more of the complex ways violence impacts a family.
7: It started to change after I left the gardens, you know, as the gangs started to rise up. And, and we know that um, gang violence is a direct result of Poverty, you know, a lack of money, lack of jobs, lack of resources. So many young men resort to violence. And my, my brother Jeffrey was a part of that community and was killed in Algale Gardens. My brother Jeffrey lived a life of um trying his very best to do better. He went to Carver and like so many other young men, just could not find his way out. And so he became part of what he saw out there. And as a result, he was killed. As a family, I think we were kind of all holding our breath for so long, hoping that one of our family members wouldn't be a part of what we saw all around us. And so for our family, when my brother was killed, I think that was kind of the final straw for us, as it was for many families. Even if you know we can't find a way to get out, we've got to protect the small amount of dignity that we have as a family, the desire to protect the family members that we have. And so I think losing my brother to gang violence in the gardens kind of was, we have got to get out of this community. And so it is um, something that I know a lot of families still struggle with, you know, wanting to protect their families from the violence in the community, but just not seeing a way to do that. And it's unfortunate because on top of living in a toxic environment, You're also living in an environment where your life is more directly put in harm's way by, you know, gun violence. So I'm still unpacking that. I'm a part of the Black Women's Health Initiative, and I had to do a questionnaire when I first joined this public health movement about 20 years ago. And in the questionnaire, they asked me if in my upbringing I had been affected by gun violence in any way. And I thought about that and I thought about a close family member that lost their dad to gun violence. And I thought about so many other folks in the gardens who had been directly impacted. And then I thought about my brother. And when I think about witnessing trauma directly, it was just a part of growing up. And even though I can say I grew up in a loving home and environment, I think that so many of us, Black folks that grow up in communities like allgo Gardens, we take the good with the bad, you know, and it's a survival mechanism. it's yep, I might go outside my house and hear about somebody getting shot or seeing um the aftermath of a a shooting, and we just roll with it like you know that's just a part of growing up the the toxins, the heavy air it was just a part of growing up, and you just assume that. The adults in the community, those that know better, are doing their best for you. But what I'm learning is the folks that knew better were not doing better.
3: We thank Dr. Joy West for sharing that story with us. And we send love and condolences to the Prowl family.
1: So we know that this divestment, this economic structural violence, beget interpersonal violence. But as we've heard throughout the whole story, the effects of the decisions of industry are so deeply interwoven with environmental injustice, the violence isn't just happening to people's blocks and their bank accounts. It's happening to their bodies. Cheryl explains just one of the many ways the corrosive effects of a toxic environment can deteriorate social relationships, especially for young people.
0: We don't know if some of these kids that out here that's doing the things that they're doing has been previously exposed to lead hazards, which gives them learning disability. They act disruptive to take away from you discovering that they have a learning disability. Violence has got to play a role in there somewhere to relieve that frustration. I'm talking about in the school setting for an example.
1: Cheryl shares a known connection here between lead exposure and learning disabilities for students going to schools with inadequate resources to address their needs. Dr. Sylvia, who over her lifetime as an epidemiologist has studied lead, talks more about how this particular toxin connects to violence, especially between young people.
6: Okay, so we all know as environmental epidemiologists that the violence is tied to their exposure to mercury and lead in the womb. Okay, these chemicals are changing our bodies and creating these issues. When I specifically did my MPH in epidemiology, I was like, whoa. Mercury, lead, what it does to the brain in utero, they know that like about a third of all incarcerated individuals, when they go back and do a health history of them, they were exposed to lead in their homes, whether it was water, whether it was lead on the walls. They have known for decades, I don't mean 10, 20, I mean 75 years, they have known what lead can do to the human brain. They have known for decades what it does to children in utero. They know it's tied to low IQ. They know it's tied to violence. It's the most immoral and unethical thing you can imagine. Yeah, you come in, you can assume that they're violent, they're aggressive, they're angry. <laughs> it's like, but you, you have put them in an environment from conception to death, which biologically make them more susceptible to either being changed or being the victims of individuals who have been changed from this pollution in their environment. That's disgusting. That's disgusting.
1: What Dr. Hood Washington just shared is known as the lead crime hypothesis. And scientists, scholars, and epidemiologists are not all in agreement that that direct causation between lead exposure and violent behavior is conclusive. We know that exposure to lead doesn't automatically make someone violent. What we can say is that the level of lead exposure that young people in all
3: Gardens had was destructive to their brains and bodies. In this conversation, we're only talking about one chemical, and Hazel gifted us with the lens of a cumulative impact, and we understand that in the gardens, there are dozens, if not hundreds, of chemicals that are dangerous to human health. So we don't have to get caught in the stickiness of causation versus correlation. And so if we zoom out from just lead, or really even just all gardens as one community, this point allows us to have a truer conversation and really get to the root of violence in our society. In doing this project, it is clear to me that the discourse is incomplete. There are narratives that I thoroughly reject around bad parents or needing more police or more punitive laws. And there are narratives that are true and compounding, such as inadequate resources for education, health and mental health care, an inadequate economy and dried up labor market. But what has been missing from the conversation and the discourse and led us ill-equipped to address the violence in all of our cities, for me particularly amongst Black people that has been mythologized through this false framing of Black-on-Black crime, is the erasure of the fact that people have been placed in toxic environments. And there's a violence embedded in that hazardousness and in the erasure of its impact on people's bodies and lives. Where we live is toxic, and toxicity begets toxicity.
1: This is the context that Cheryl does her work in, and these are the challenges that she's trying to address. In this episode, and really in the whole show, we've documented a lot of the harms that people in the gardens have experienced, and many of the ways that they've pushed back and raised awareness. But all of that work is ultimately in service of working toward repair. And Cheryl has stewarded the organization through this shift, from Hazel fighting to find out what was happening and raise awareness to now trying to figure out what do we do about it and how do we move toward healing. But how do we begin this process of repair? We asked Juliana, one of the members of our creative cabinet and an environmental justice visionary in her own right, how to begin to reach toward repair.
8: Repair in Altgeld Gardens has to do with centering the priorities of the people who live there now and what they need in their daily lives. So Real environmental justice, I, I think, has to come down to what residents want, what the people who live in the place that's impacted define it to be. It has to come down to that.
3: Juliana's right. The path to repair has to center the most impacted. And the most impacted people are the people living in the gardens. So once again, we hopped on the Bishop Ford microphones in hand, and headed back to the gardens.
6: If we have any issues with
2: that jumpy house, we will shut it down. First.
1: Have fun and enjoy!
3: All right, Damon. What are we doing? We, we are here on location in the gardens, um, gathering and celebrating with the community. This is the 43 year anniversary of PCR. It's in conjunction with the elongated Juneteenth weekend. So, you know, Black liberation kind of as the center and, you know, community work at the forefront. It's just been. It's been a pleasure to one, be, be present with the community, but also to have opportunity to talk to some folks and like get deeper into some of their perspectives. This is my favorite social, cultural, political tactic. This type of gathering, like just the aesthetic of the grill going, the bouncy house, um, and, you know, music playing in the background with the combination of resources being offered. So clothes being redistributed, um, blood pressure and other health screenings is really important. The churches are here um, seeing, you know, kids walk around with the, with the candy, the chips and the, the snow cone. Um, but knowing that, you know, that is something that people and particularly black people have a muscle around and know how to do, but know how to do it many times in many spaces. But when it's deployed, for these larger community building efforts with this political underground. And you can feel the power and you can feel the the challenging of despair with like active hope. And so that feels really present here. There's an interconnectedness that feels like it is apt towards developing community here that I really appreciate.
1: And we're in this beautiful little uh, birch tree grove under the trees, giving us some shade on this hot day.
2: My name is Mina Jefferson. I am a resident in Argyll Garden and I do work for a um, PCR.
3: What does repair or recovery look like to you now that you're learning this, not only as somebody working with the organization, but as a resident?
2: Oh, what do that look like to me? I guess what it looked like, feel like is us.
3: <laughs> What's your name?
1: How old are you? Where do you stay?
9: I'm, my name is Lamonte. I'm 17. I stay right here in Ogil Garden, this block, block six. I hear a lot of stories about when my um when my parents know was growing up. It wasn't a lot of shootings out here like how it is now. Kids going out here playing with guns and none like that. And then once we started getting older, next you know you look up all the young kids playing with guns. Like events like this, it gotta be a lot of people in order to have an event in a one certain block that they know that ain't no shootings or nothing gonna happen in. Cause every time they throw an event in this block, it never been a shooting in this block. If we start like speaking up for ourselves and going to other blocks and doing the same things that we doing in this block, I bet you we could start changing everything around back to how the way it used to be when we can be able to walk outside and do the things that our parents used to do back then when they was able to go outside and enjoy their life. Everybody should be able to live that one life that they got. And I pray for everybody else in the, in the rest of the blocks too.
1: So just real quick, you heard Lamonte talk about the different blocks. That's the way the gardens is laid out and the way residents talk about one area in relation to the other. Now the block he's talking about and where we were is the block where the PCR office is. As you might remember, PCR is currently working out of one of the residential units in the gardens. It's a two-bedroom apartment that they've repurposed into the office for the organization.
3: And Lamonte offers us a really significant perspective. For him, the presence PCR brings to his block brings safety throughout the year, but especially on days like the day we met him, where PCR does more than just gather resources and information, they gather people.
1: One of the people present was Craig Hardaway. Craig lives near the gardens and works with young people in the gardens as well as the whole Roseland area overall.
3: And so for you as somebody who does work addressing violence, particularly youth violence, but you also just mentioned this environmental impact, whether it's from your organization or just from your own perspective and experience, how do you see that environmental impact Intersecting with or, or shaping the way that violence happens in our communities. Is that,
10: is that connection made for you or for anybody you work yeah, I think, with? I, I, think, I think you can always draw, you know what I mean, intersectionality. Once you get to talking about like um, toxic dump and toxic waste where people injecting it into their body, it changes the chemical makeup. You know what I mean? Once the chemical makeup get changed, the way of thinking changes, you know what I mean? I think that when you come out in the community and the community don't see green grass, flowers, green trees, you know, that takes away hope. That makes people feel, you know what I mean, man, indifferent, they feel dispelled. When they go to other communities and see beauty and then when they revert back to their own, it's like, man. And I think that once, once people see that day in and day out, the same way like with the news reports, day in and day out, you become desensitized. You stop caring, you know what I mean?
3: Craig went on to share thoughts that are important as we ask this question, what does repair look like, particularly for people not from the gardens? You mean like maybe two guys, late
1: 20s, early 30s, with microphones sitting at a
3: table? Definitely, but especially people coming with privileged institutional access.
10: I think that a lot of people go in with a colonizing mentality only from the standpoint of, I feel I know what's best for you. Give people agency, but how do you teach it? That's what it boils down to. You could be advocates or you could get people agencies, but you can't do both. And in my experience, we find more advocacy work than we find agency promotion. Can you specify a little bit how that shows up here in the gardens? That's really powerful. You know what I mean, man? People will look in from afar. They'll come up with their scientific theories, you know what I mean? Or, you know what I mean, their thesis is what they went to college for and they did their dissertations on, and then they come in, you know what I mean, with this ideology of, I know what's best for you. You know, so when they come in with that, what they already did is prejudge a whole community of people without once hearing from that community. You know what I mean? And like I say, I think that that's the advocacy part. The agency part will be to come in and teach people What's being done to you? This is what we see. Now, what do you see? I think that promoting an agency, promoting awareness, informing the community, you know what I mean, then sitting back and giving over the keys and resources to that community to allow them. Because again, it's not a one-size-fits-all model when it comes to justice. Justice for different people look different ways.
3: Craig leaves us with a powerful framework that building justice and healing has to be a collaborative, participatory process that places agency in the hands of those most impacted.
1: So often, the plans for transformation in Chicago don't do this, and the results can be disastrous. The steps taken are so often to move people, especially people in public housing, out of their homes, disperse them all over the city and into the suburbs. Cheryl has seen those effects firsthand. And she draws a hard line. That can't happen to the gardens. We can't just lift up
0: a community of maybe 3,000 units and move them where? They demonstrated what they did with Robert Taylor's and the rest of them, and they scattered people because they was more concerned about bricks and mortar than human health or human development. Today... That same land, Robert Taylor's and Ida B. Wells and ABLA, CHA is trying to sell them to a developer. But they're supposed to be replacement of affordable housing for folks to live at, you know. So I have to bring these things up because that's what we always fight about. It's the intersectionality of what affects us economically, what affect us, our health, what
1: affects our education, and most importantly, what affects our housing. How do you build the type of partnership that's needed with an institution? as big and nefarious as the city government of Chicago. You look for the people inside the beast who are aligned with you.
6: And there are some great people. I think Kyra Woods is a great example of a city official trying to do both, repairing the damage that has already been done while building something better that is inclusive and acknowledges the, the history that exists. I don't know if the city as a whole is
8: there. Lives cannot be reclaimed. Remediation in some respects at this point is very, very expensive given some of the allowed practices for so many years. While some things may not be returned like life and the cost that may be required to remediate an entire neighborhood could be a lot. I mean, honestly, the, the participants in that need to be many and it likely needs a very skilled set of facilitators to identify the path forward, not only from community members, but also government officials elected and other community leaders, those who aren't elected but holds power in other ways. And then of course neighboring industries are those who will be asked to make changes too, I think need to be there. It's important to acknowledge harm. I think it is important to have a shared understanding of history. And that may not feel good for everybody, but being clear about what happened um, and what is happening. And then we have the opportunity to, to fix some things that we know have not been carried out well. And I think one of those actions would be to stop causing harm. I think the first thing when you're harming someone is you stop doing the thing. And the other element is the idea of equity and particularly racial equity. But if we take it just for the word that speaks to that imbalance and the need to overcompensate in other areas that have been deficient in order to restore balance, we're talking about equitably repairing systems and moving forward. I think frequently institutions say we'll do better and then they do better for like the future thing and don't Seek to repair. So I think that's why I'm saying, you know, like stop doing the thing, reflect on what's on the table, and make investments that help to remediate and even the playing field. I think it would be a well funded, well supported commitment to like enact the choices that are decided out of that working series.
3: Dr. Hood Washington gets to the heart of it.
6: it's not popular for some people, but I would call it environmental justice reparations. (laughs) Okay.
3: Okay. (laughs) She's making an important linguistic connection that often gets overlooked. The word reparations has become a political buzzword or a contested term, but it really just means a process of repair. And it's an important politic that many liberation movements have built to map how we address injustice. And this is one of the main things we hope listeners to this series take away. To truly oppose and resist environmental racism means to organize for environmental justice reparations.
1: What comes out of this reparative process is going to be wide-ranging because it has to address the wide range of harms that have been enacted on people in the gardens and beyond. Olga Bautista from our creative cabinet shares some of what could and should be included in this reparative process.
5: Because of the past harms, we want to see... Something that is also restorative. It's going to look like more oversight by community advisory boards. It's going to be more participatory planning in zoning and land use decisions, budgeting. You know, we can't do any of these things without dollars. We need dollars. So we want to be part of, you know, defunding the police and channeling some of that funding over here so that we can. Have like a community oversight board that is compensated to to do that hard work of digging in and figuring out what should be going where. You know, we need to have more clinics, more hospitals in our communities. So to literally like repair like the physical harm, uh, we need to protect our parks and our green spaces so that we have places that we can go and just disconnect and help heal all the trauma. You know, help with our mental health. And we need universal health care. Everybody in the Calumet region who has been exposed to these polluters, who has lived on toxic land, we should be able to go to any doctor at any moment and any time to get help and get healthy. That's how they can repair harm. That's how they can restore our communities and admit you know, that these bad policies actually cost us in, in actual lives.
1: Olga names those components of repair with such clarity. And that clarity comes in part from her work directly with Cheryl.
5: Cheryl was bringing up, like, how are we going to repair harm when we think about, like, what does actual sustainable development look like? I don't think they would have been as rich if we hadn't had this history of, of this long fight that, that Hazel Johnson was a part of.
1: And we had the same experience. Every time we sat down with Cheryl, we heard new examples, very specific visionary examples of what repair could look like in regard to jobs. There's a
0: possibility of us learning from the mistakes that we had made in the past and creating an environmental remediation workforce to be able to learn how to do these Samplings and cleaning up our community because we don't have a lot of land to, that is not contaminated. You know, we could get solar up in there. Mm-hmm. We could do some thermal stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, because this water never be healthy. So why not produce some energy from it? Housing. We don't want to be labor as public housing. We want to be cooperative housing. Give me some equity. I got my equity. I don't like that after sixty years. C H J owed me a equity check <laughs> <laughs> from the dividends of paying rent living out here. That's a mortgage payment. That's a mortgage payment. And safety. You know, allow things to be accessible for everyone, not just limited to mm-hmm. certain categories.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: I should be able to go out to police funding just like they fund policemen <laughs>
3: mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: to do violence prevention or oh, to yeah. do right. community post Community police it should never be managed by the police department. Yeah. That's not community police. Yeah. That's that's snitching. <laughs> and in our community, that's say right. snitches get stitches. <laughs> right?
3: So like imagine if you were able to hold yeah, a channel high. You know, but like, here are the resources the police department used use. to so-called police our community. If we had these they- same resources, could we not get better outcomes?
0: Yeah. I can. Yeah. And and it should be open, it should just not be limited just to police.
5: Yeah. <laughs>
3: That last clip comes from the conversation with me and Cheryl sitting down right next to the Calumet River. And I learned so much in that conversation. For nearly a decade now, on and off mic, I've been having conversations and organizing in response to the harms of police violence, particularly on Black people in the United States. A central thrust of that organizing has been a framework of how we transfer power away from this harmful system into communal needs. And we've used the language of divest, invest. How do we reallocate resources that are dedicated to militarism, policing, prisons, into the needs of healthcare, education, and community sustainability? And to be honest, there's been a feeling of of responsibility, but, but actually more of like a pressure to offer solutions and answers of what we should be investing into in really detailed, concrete terms. And the movement that I'm a part of has brought forth really visionary proposals. But what is clear to me now is that the environmental justice movement, Hazel, and really Cheryl, for the last 20 to 25 years have been giving detailed answers to that very question. So a few times in the show, we've made the point that a true investment in environmental justice also requires a resistance to militarism and policing. But what's actually more important for me to learn is that if you're interested in liberating ourselves from carceral oppression in the forms of police and prisons, we actually need to center environmental justice and the visionary mothering that has provided real answers to the question of how do we actively allocate resources in a way that effectively prioritize the needs of people rather than prop up death-making institutions the true power of cheryl's visions expands beyond her programmatic or project proposals just like hazel it lives in the people she's mothered
1: we've heard from Biria hampton a couple times
3: if you remember she talked
1: about growing up in the gardens hanging around Hazel because she always had the good snacks and activities, and it felt like a a place with some energy and and, and some opportunities to be in the world, to be where the action was. Now Beria sits at the center of PCR's office. She and Adela are two of the key figures tasked with keeping Hazel's legacy alive by taking on the leadership of PCR as Cheryl passes some of the load of leadership to the next generation. Here's Beria's vision of what this repair can grow in the gardens. I want us to feel what normal
2: or freedom,
1: what it feels like to
2: have resources available to you, opportunity that the only people who will miss it is those who don't want it, not because it's not available to you, I, I see community again. I see the real greenery. I want to see the clean green version of this. I want to see the environment or the people where we were once a community turn back into that community, turn back into that resourcefulness, turn back into that family that we used to be before the environment broke us up uh, with violence, before the environment broke us up with pollution. I just want to see gale become that
1: family that we once had. Beria's vision becomes more and more possible every day. But like Kyra said earlier, there are some harms that can't be repaired, some damage that can't be undone. There's a covered walkway in Uptop, the former commercial center where PCR's offices used to be. The walls are painted yellow, and one of those walls is covered with handwritten names. The names of people from the gardens who aren't here anymore whose lives have been lost to violence and pollution-related illnesses. It's a continuous and ever-evolving memorial.
5: Bad policies actually cost us in, in actual lives. People that we needed in our community. You know, these are valuable, valuable lives. People in our community who could have been teachers, who could have been doctors who could have been musicians and artists, you know? Those were important people who, who are listed on the walls in Elk Gal El Gardens that died of cancer. It's just a shame that, that they had to lose their life and that we still have these policies that are, are just not meant to, to repair any of this harm. We needed those people in our neighborhoods.
3: And this wall serves as a consistent reminder, creates space for grief, and it uplifts a spiritual connection to those who have transitioned, demonstrating how their memory and legacies are still with us. Which is exactly why Hazel started PCR in the first place. It is important to remember that all of this work was birthed out of the grief of losing John Johnson, Hazel's husband and Cheryl's father.
1: That intimate family grief, and the grief Hazel felt losing these community members around her, the three little girls who live nearby,
3: and passed away from cancer. So in this episode, we've been talking about Cheryl taking on a greater responsibility, navigating bureaucratic institutional politics, economic precarity, envisioning new possibilities for repair, but also shepherding and stewarding a lot of collective grief. In this period where we're seeing Cheryl step into leadership, Hazel had to take a step back. As her health waned with age, she remained present and connected to the work of PCR and remained as a guide for Cheryl as she was navigating these challenges. And on January 12, 2011, at the age of 75, Hazel Johnson passed away.
0: She started to deteriorate after the death of my brother Michael. You know, that was her first child that ever, you know, that passed away before anybody. And that's because he had a congenital heart problem. The aorta busted in his heart. Every parent feel that they should not be bearing a child. And that hurted my mom because my brother got up that morning, cooked my mother breakfast. After he cooked her breakfast, he took a shower. Then he came and sat in the kitchen with her and said, Mama, call the Amalan And alan's got here before they even took him out to God my brother was dead. So just think about that impact that he got up and cooked her breakfast that morning. Never knowing that that was the last time she was going to see her son. So I see my mother's health started declining. She started not to want to do anything. She stopped speaking. She stopped being in the office. So I used to always try to take her places, take her grocery shop. That's something she loved to do, go to the grocery store and go out to eat afterwards. That was a ritual. (laughs) So she took sick on January 7th, something like that. She went into the hospital. I was out of town. I was in D.C. I came straight from D.C. and went to the hospital. And she was in the tensor care. Then she passed January 12th.
2: So I think that's when Cheryl fully just took on the entire role, what her mother had laid out. I really applaud her because sometimes it's hard to step in someone else's shoes. It's hard. Like even with me transitioning, sometimes I have my doubts and sometimes I feel really strong about it. I kind of understand the pressures that Cheryl felt just taking on that role.
0: Yeah. My mom, she was a spiritual person. Just like she said that she wasn't trained to do this type of work. It was something that God called her to do. And she answered to that. To say right here, see this chain? This is hers. It's Mary on it and Jesus on the other side. And she gave that to me a year before she passed. She said, never take it off your neck. And she said, and don't let your son wear it but nothing didn't because <laughs> my son had a habit of getting it from her and she had to chase him down to get it back. And every time she got it back, it was broke. <laughs> so I don't even let him wear it. He, he'll tell you right now today. I said, no, your granny said that it never to come off my neck. I never took it off out of what's this Eleven, twelve 12 years. So I'm saying this, that when I have trouble, when I feel sad, when I need her guidance, This is what I do. Because that's the same thing she used to do. Just hold it.
2: A lot of that light that Cheryl works in is her mother's light. That's how she knows she's doing the right thing. She has a lot of pictures that sit right behind her. And her mother is part of those memories that sit behind. So when we were working on a grant project and Cheryl, I forgot what it was she said, she looked back at that picture like her mother had seen or heard her say something and she got back in line like, you know what? My mother would not like this, let me do it this way. So it's like she still presently feels her mother It's that thing that you can't see, but you know it's present. So a lot of that Cheryl still works out of. It's weird. She sit behind me too. Cheryl makes that rub off on me. The tradition of the way that her mom brought her into the organization, the decisions that her mother would have made. So everything Cheryl does, she acts as if her mother is still presently watching her. This is what my mother would want to do. Surprisingly, I
0: still say good morning to her. When I'm troubled, I ask for her guidance. And I ask for the rest of my angels up there to help the sister out. <laughs> me and my mother was very, very... I'm six out of seven children, but me and her was the closest. I just tell her, my my youngest sister, I said, you the youngest in the family, but I'm her baby. You know, that type of stuff. So me and my mother was real close. I come from a family of nine. It's just two of us left, me and my baby sister. Never thought I would be... You know, just me and my baby sister, because my family, we got along. We had fun together. Don't nobody mess with the Johnsons. <laughs> <laughs> and we had every problem just like every other family did. But that was my brothers and sisters, and I missed them dearly today. And my mother. My mother enjoyed
5: her kids.
1: Help This Garden Grow is presented by
3: Respair Production and Media, with Elevate and People for Community Recovery. The show is hosted and created by us, Damon Williams and Daniel Kissinger. Our co-executive producers are Sylvia Ewing, Ann Evans, and Cheryl Johnson. Our associate producer is Natalie
1: Frazier. Our editor is Rocio Santos. And our consulting producers are Maurice
3: and Judith from Juneteenth Productions. Special thanks to our creative cabinet, Adela Bass, Olga Batista, Tanisha Harris, Juliana Pino, and Kyra Woods.
1: Our artwork is designed by Ariana Eggleston with additional multimedia
3: support from Davon Clark. Help This Garden Grow was recorded in the Malika Lean studio at The Breathing Room Space, a movement-building center stewarded by the Let Us Breathe Collective. You can find out more about the work of Respair Production and Media at
1: respairmedia.com, get in tune with Elevate and elevatenp.org, and support the work of PCR at peopleforcommunityrecovery.org.
3: Much love to the people.
1: Peace.